Coming up this hour, we remember Carl Reiner, plus a surprisingly small percentage of Americans actually believe that life is sacred. That and more is coming up here on The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a whole heap of places. First, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We post all of our articles there. You can weigh in in the comments section. You can send us a message if you like, if you have suggestions, if you have articles, if you have interviews, or if you didn't like a show. We get those sometimes too, don't we, Brian? We sometimes within the last 24 hours. Yeah, we do get those. (laughs) Every (laughs) once in a while, that also happens, but we do really welcome your feedback. We want to always be improving, and the Facebook is a great place to do that. Also, 1160hope.com slash the common good on Instagram and Twitter at common good talk. Plus, Ryan, drum roll, please. Wherever it is you get podcast. Wow, was that your drum roll? That was terrible. Did you just, <laughs> did you just fall down a flight of stairs? Is that what happened? No, I was just I was just banging on my desk here. It sounded nothing like a drum. <laughs> did you just have a seizure? What is going on in the front <laughs> house? All right, off air. I'm going to teach you how to how to do Thank a you. drum roll. One drummer to a non-drummer. Thank you. <laughs> I'm happy to help. All that to say, our podcast is available anywhere you get podcasts. And it does help out the show a whole ton when you subscribe, rate, and review. And we're super grateful for all of you who have done so. I guess it seems appropriate that we'd begin this segment with a little bit of comedy, given what we're going to talk about, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Were you uh, a Carl Reiner fan or what I'm, what was your relationship I, to like his era of comedy? Not good, apparently, because I saw it all going around that Carl Reiner died. And my first thought was, I'm not sure I know who that is. Oh no! Uh, kidding. So, yeah, I know that's terrible. I know, like a lot, a lot of my uh, my my uh, entertainment interests go back to all the way to about 1985. <laughs> so, but once I saw pictures of him in the various shows he was in, from you know the Mary Tyler Moore show all the way up to you know Ocean's Eleven or Ocean's Twelve, I'm like, oh, I know who that is. But yeah, it was. It took reading some stuff for me to kind of jog my memory of who that was. Uh, you were clearly much more familiar with him. Well, and listen, no no judgment. I mean, you have to hold on to all those statistics about, you know, RBIs and All-Star Games. So it can't, <laughs> you, can't also, <laughs> you can't also fit comedy in there. So uh, I totally understand. Actually, have we ever talked about this? Have you seen the show uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld? Uh, I've seen a couple of them, and that was one of the things I saw today was him with uh, Carl Reiner as I was kind of going, who? Let me remind me who this guy was, but go ahead and tell it. Uh, that episode, I mean, the show, and you know, people have their differences of opinions about Jerry Seinfeld, which I completely understand, but that show is just about conversations and usually talking about the art of comedy and the history of comedy. And so that episode was so sweet and so endearing, and it's it's him and it's Mel Brooks and they're just talking about the old days and they're talking about the craft and they're talking about the culture of comedy. And I don't know if you haven't seen it today of all days, it's a really, it would just be a a good day to see it. I I just found it to be incredibly endearing, but also, I don't know, it was more interesting than I was anticipating, particularly given how comedy has changed over the decades. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked a lot of times how I really believe that in, in many ways, comedians are the closest thing we have to modern day prophets And uh, we can talk about that a little bit later. But our producer, PJ, put together just a short tribute. So I wanted to just play. That's about a minute long. Just a a little bit of a tribute to Carl Reiner. And then I want to respond to this article from uh, the New York Post. Whatever you were going to say to Laura, I would rather you said to me. Okay, Rob. 
That's the way you want it. <laughs> Rob, you're a beautiful girl. <laughs> the five years I spent with Carl Reiner and Mary Tyler Moore on the Van Dyke Show were the five best years of my life. The most fun I ever had, the most creative, and I think I learned the most working with Carl Reiner that I ever learned did. Learned what? Timing? About comedy, about human behavior, about, about everything. Carl uh, could have been a psychiatrist. He understands people so well. The world <laughs> is full of normal neurotics, and we like to see ourselves, and I think, yeah. we, think we saw ourselves in Dick. Always said that I like you so much better without your room. Uh... Hey, hey. <laughs> people actually hit themselves oh, in the face. Oh, boy. Wow. That hurts, though. Yeah, you're better now. It's not. <laughs> Do you pinch yourself a lot? All the Look time. All, all the time. How did this happen? It's still a dream. It's still a dream. So the comment in particular about how he could have been a psychologist or could have been a psychiatrist, I, I think yeah. that is such an interesting instinct to have towards somebody who just understands not just like telling jokes, but timing and framing and, and people. I think in order to be good at comedy, you have to be good at just reading people or understanding human nature, which I find so fascinating. But this article, though, that I found from New York Post, it says, why comedy genius Carl Reiner's death feels like a punch in the gut. What's going on with this article? Yeah, it talks about how he is one of uh, pop culture's fixtures. And so they talk about Joan Rivers' death and Robin Williams. And the point being that you always think, this is written by Michael Starr, that these people are always going to live. And he says, Carl Reiner passed away at the age of 98. So he was around for such a long time. And then it lists uh, all of his uh, things that he did. Uh, he said, I always found it touching that he and his comedy partner and best friend, Mel Brooks, who turned 94 on Sunday, were still so close to the very end. The lifelong friends met in the early 1950s and got together frequently at Reiner's home uh, to have something to eat. And he said, I can't imagine how Brooks is feeling uh, mm. right now. And it just goes through how, you know, especially for people uh, who who were familiar with his career, Carl Reiner was around for so long that uh, it's as punch in the gut, as he said, uh, just knowing that he's now gone or even Conan O'Brien. I was sharing with you. Let me read Conan O'Brien went to Twitter uh, because somebody like Carl Reiner, you know, you just think like you just said, do they just tell jokes? Do they really have an impact? Listen to Conan O'Brien and what he said. He said, as an 11 year old boy, I saw Carl Reiner in 10 from your show of shows. And I said out loud, I want to do that. My father thought I wanted to run the projector. Today, I defy anyone to capture the comedic impact of Carl Reiner using mere words. He simply did too much, too well, and all with life-giving good cheer. He was funny about every facet of life, even death. And if he could be with us now, he would give a eulogy for himself that would blow the roof off any synagogue, church, or mosque. In dark times, Carl Reiner is lasting proof that life is wondrous, funny, and worth the trouble. God bless you, Carl. Like That's a life that made an impact. Uh, across the board on a lot of people. Yeah, and I, I, I'm curious why you think it's not it's not just celebrities. And we've certainly we've seen our fair share of social media grief when we lose a celebrity. But there seems to be a different type of affection or warmth when it's a comedian. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, you know, I think Conan O'Brien touched on it a little bit. Comedians, even when they're being prophetic, like you like to say, or even when they're pointing out things, they're still funny. They still make us laugh. And uh, I think that there is um, there is some comfort in knowing that when I watch this guy or this girl, they're going to make me laugh. They might make me think, but they're going to make me feel good about myself. And so 
there is some comfort, especially someone who's been around for 98 years. Like, and you know, a lot of times comedians have a lot of darkness in, going on in their personal lives, but we don't know that, right? That was like the Robin Williams story. When Robin Williams died, you're like, what in the world? Um, and so I think that's the answer. I think that, uh, that there isn't a lot of things in this world that make us laugh. And so when there are people who regularly make us laugh, uh, we like to hold on to them. Yeah, I think you're right. There's another article from Forbes that uh, I'll link to at least. The headline says how Carl Reiner quietly led Jewish humor into the American mainstream. What I think people maybe don't realize, especially and like you, you know, you were sort of admitting it, not even being sure who it was, that he really was a pioneer yeah. and for a long time, a bit of an icon. But if you go and watch that Comedians in Cards episode, there there is a certain sort of quiet, patient wisdom to him in hearing him talk about, you know, the the good old days, but also coming to terms with his own mortality. And either way, I just wanted to spend a, a segment just sort of remembering yeah. someone. And I know a lot of people, you know, won't necessarily agree with this segment or us honoring him or blah, 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 blah. Either way, I think that he brought a lot to, uh, to entertainment and to comedy and a lot of smiles to faces. And we wanted to kind of start the show honoring him a little bit. Coming up next, an article Brian found a surprisingly low percentage of Americans believe that life is sacred. That's a study out of Barna that we're going to talk about coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. If you want to find us, we're still sheltering in place, but you can find digital representations of us and the show and the content a whole heap of places. Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can find articles there, even stuff we don't necessarily talk about on the show. Send us a message if you like. If you loved it, you hated it, you have suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Plus 1160hope.com slash the common good and wherever it is you get your podcasts. Super grateful for every single one of you who has ever subscribed or rated or reviewed. Brian seems to think that subscribing and then unsubscribing and then resubscribing sometimes helps. helps. I don't think it does. <laughs> I'm not confident I'm do in that. It for hours. <laughs> I don't think it does. But we're uh, we're also confident, though, that you can ask Alexa to play the Common Good Radio Show, and she will be happy to oblige. Um, Brian found this article from Christian Headlines. That's christianheadlines.com. And uh, it's a study out of Barna, and I've said it a couple of times, a surprisingly small percentage of Americans believe that life is sacred. I'm wondering, getting into this, if maybe the question is worded strangely or whatnot. Um, this is maybe an impossible question, Brian, but before you actually read this article, what percentage would you have guessed would answer that question affirmatively? Uh, who say that life is sacred, I would have guessed it was double this. I would have guessed that most people would agree that human life is sacred, whether you believe in a God or not. Um, and maybe it's that word sacred that throws people, but um, yeah, the number here is a lot lower than I thought. Yeah, I would also say double, which is pretty okay. Yeah. Have we teased it up enough? The number, ready for it? You want to drum? You want to drum roll break. again? <laughs> I got it ready right now. Yep. yep. Whoa! You're already improving, young grasshopper. Yeah, much Whoa. better. Thirty-nine percent. Uh, Only thirty-nine percent of Americans believe life is sacred. Barna finds. Why don't you get us into the meat of this study? Yeah, and, and the Barna studies, especially in the Christian world, tend to hold a lot of weight. They do good research, and it says. Six out of 10 Americans disagree with the statement that human life is sacred, according to a new survey. Barna Group surveyed about 2,000 people and asked them about feelings on human life. Sacred was defined as having unconditional intrinsic worth. So there's your definition of what they use for sacred. 
Uh, and again, 39% said they agreed with the claim that human life is sacred. A substantially larger share of the population combined to offer views such as life is what you make it, but it has no absolute value, 37%. Life does not attain its full value until we reach our highest point of evolution and expression, 11%. Mm -hmm. Or other less popular points of view that concurred that life has no infinite, unconditional value. Hmm. Of those who said they were evangelical and born-again Christian, 60% agreed with the statement. Of those who identified as Pentecostal, that number was 46, and uh, Roman Catholics were 43%. Wow. Uh, most, at 69%, said that people are basically good. Uh, more than 30 years ago, Barna survey showed that 83% of people believe that people were basically good. And so he's going to go off, and we could talk about this in a second, but there, Barna himself is going to talk about uh, some of these findings and what he thinks about it. But man, I really, I tried to look at like where these could have tripped people up, yeah. but it seems pretty straightforward. Life is sacred. Life has intrinsic value. Um, and for that many people to say no, I think the is not only just surprising for me, but the repercussions of that uh, throughout then your worldview, I think can get pretty scary. Yeah. So says that 37% said life is what you make it, but it has no absolute value. 11% says life does not attain to its full value until we reach our highest point of evolution and expression. And then at the very end, it said some of the other findings. I just want to make sure I got these in. Um, yeah. 12% 12, 12 believe that people are, quote, material substance, biological machines. 12% believe that people are part of the mind of the universe. Other responses said humans are, quote, an illusion, do not exist, or are sleeping gods part of the soul of the universe. So it sounds like a pretty massive study and again uh i always wonder like you were saying is there the possibility that something was confused this is i mean you and i are not new at this anymore we completely realize that statistics can be used to really say almost anything it seems um but some of these questions just regarding the the sacredness of life and i'd love for you to share what dr george barna actually shared and said in response to this because i think it has at least from his perspective some some unique implications yeah, Dr. George Barna, the founder, obviously, of the Barna Group, said this. He said obviously. the survey's findings are impacted by demonstrations happening across the U.S. He said a movement to defund police departments might make sense if people are innately good, he explained. People with a humanistic worldview argue that crime and violence happen because of poverty, bad parenting, systematic discrimination, and other external forces. Yet crime statistics, political tensions, tendencies toward anger and hatred, and America's moral deterioration and confusion suggest that we are neither innately good nor that emotional responses to empirical challenges will solve the problems. He says the underlying issues are ill-formed character and a broken moral compass. Economic, social, and economic, social, and cultural depravity are outgrowths of our moral and character deficiencies, not causes. So he goes in really hard. He sees this as a huge deal that, in his mind, Barna's mind seems to explain a lot of what he sees going on around us. So, what do you think of that very final sentence there? Economic, social, and cultural depravity are outgrowths of our moral and character deficiencies, not causes. You know, I do think. Um, I do think that to have, let's say this way, to have a view that life is not sacred, that others don't necessarily hold innate uh, value, I do think an outgrowth of that is um, that we will take advantage of people. It, I think narcissism comes out of that. I think all sorts of things come out of that because that you're not seeing value just in the person's humanity 
that you're interacting with or you're talking about. So for instance, economic, social, and cultural depravity are outgrowths of something bigger. Uh, if you believe this survey, uh, I think it's true. If you don't see other people as formed in the image of God and holding value because of who God created them, uh, who created them, that God created them and gave them value, uh, then I could see these other things being an outgrowth uh, coming out of that. What do you think of his statement? Uh, I don't think it's neither or, to be honest. I think to say that economic, social, and cultural depravity are simply outgrowths of our moral and character deficiencies, not causes, is to in some way imply that people's moral compasses and character trajectories aren't also shaped by the economic, social, and cultural systems they find themselves in. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, I don't really feel the need personally to say it's only one direction or the other. I think we probably, in general, as a people, could do a better job of recognizing, you know, both impulses, both sources and, and trajectories and directions of influence, I guess. So it seems like the camps tend to be pretty divided. It's either ah, it's only a hard issue, so it's no there's no value in, in, in moving the needle in terms of legislation, because if you don't heal the heart, then it doesn't matter what happens, you know, in any other governing office. But the other way, I think sometimes we can focus perhaps or some camps maybe are focusing too heavily only on social change and not asking the, the more difficult questions about what's happening at the heart level. And I think it I, it needs to be a balance of both. And maybe that feels like a cop out to somebody, but I think it, it really, really it requires both. Yeah, and one of the important conversations we've had over the past couple of weeks is just how essential the doctrine of the Imago Dei is, right? The image of God, that that's where value comes from for all humans, all humanity. And so that this survey goes right against that, right? To say that uh, six out of 10 Americans don't believe that human life has unconditional intrinsic worth and that it has more to do with what you're able to do and all those kind of things. Uh, that's, uh, if we believe this, this image of God uh, theology is so important, then what we're learning here is we've got a lot of work to do as a culture because it's saying here that more people don't believe that than do believe that. So how do you actually do that then in the 15 seconds we have left? I just think we can't, like in our setting with churches or a radio show or whatever, we just can't talk about it enough. We just can't preach about it enough, uh, do stories about it enough, talk to our children about it. I think this idea of where people's value comes from tied into who created them changes so much. And so I, I think it's a doctrine that churches can't just preach once on, but just has to be a drumbeat uh, that they go back to time and time and time again. Yeah, I agree. I think that's good. All right. Coming up next, uh, Cornell West and Robert George had a conversation on cancel culture. And not only do I think what they said was fascinating, but how they said it was equally, if not even more so interesting in terms of the respect that they have for each other. So I want us to listen in on that conversation coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian from a little bit of house cleaning. One, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We post articles and you can send us messages, plus 1160hope.com and wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing helps us out a whole heap of a lot, and we're super grateful for all of you who have done this. Brian, I think you saw this. Uh, I saw a couple of people tweeting about it. So Cornell West and Robert George had a conversation right. on cancel culture, and not only do I think the conversation itself was fascinating, and I didn't agree with everything that was said, obviously, but the respect that the two had for each other just seems so palpable. It was so 
obvious that there was like a friendship there. And rather than than kind of chopping it to pieces and editing it, I just wanted people to hear uh, a good chunk of the conversation just because I thought it was so good. So this is Cornell West and Robert George talking about cancel culture. More than 18,000 people have signed an online petition urging D.C. public schools to rename Woodrow Wilson High School. And Princeton says it will remove Wilson's name from its public policy school. After the university's board of trustees said the 28th president's segregationist policies make him a, quote, inappropriate namesake. Let's bring in professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard, Cornell West, and a professor of jurisprudence at Princeton, Robert George. They both happen to be good friends, and we're glad to have you both. Thank you, Shannon. It's great to be on the show, especially with my dear brother, Cornell. Oh, and it's always a blessing to be with my dear brother, Robbie. And thank you so much for having us, Sister Shannon. Appreciate it. I want to start off with something from the American Thinker, which says cancel culture. What happens when everything gets canceled? They say it's leading us to an Orwellian dystopic society from America, the beautiful to the Hunger Games. When the left wants to cancel everything that is part of the American culture and way of life, there will be nothing left. And perhaps that's the goal. They can remake history as they choose, like writing a novel. But history is important, even the bad parts. Professor West, how do we decide what stays and what goes and who gets to decide? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that Brother Robbie and I try to exemplify in terms of showing how love and brotherhood is not reducible to politics and ideology is a strong defense of rights and liberties, a lifting every voice with the anthem of black people. We have to ensure that people have a right to express themselves, no matter how much we agree, no matter how much we disagree. And so the cancellation culture really allows for certain power games to be played. We know power is real, but there's got to be a defense of rights and liberties, no matter how much we disagree. And that's why I think Brother Chris, the president of Princeton, I think is wrong in terms of the process by which he went about this, not consulting with faculty and, and, and students in a serious way and just putting forward executive declaration. And so in that sense, I think that Brother Robbie and I are concerned about this process. But I, I, I want my brother to be able to say what he got to say Well, yeah, let me, let me read this tweet from John Andrasik. He tweets this. He says, canceling someone you disagree with is easy and lazy. Presenting a counterargument takes effort, courage, and at times a humility to reassess your, reassess your own beliefs. The only thing I'd cancel if I could is cancel culture. It's toxic to free speech, solutions, and harmony. Professor George. Well, I think it's very important that our young people not be given the message that everything is about politics and power and winning and getting your way. Now, politics is important. Power is important. Those things aren't even bad in themselves. But there's something more fundamental and more important and that those things are reason and truth. Where politics and power go wrong is when they're not under the control of reason and truth, because when politics and power are not under the control and guidance of reason and truth, they soon degenerate into oppression and tyranny. Look, every single human being is made in the very image and likeness of God. Every single human being is the bearer of profound, inherent, and equal dignity. Human beings are not to be canceled. They are to be engaged, talked with, argued with, debated with, challenged, but not canceled. Every human being is frail and fallible. Every human being does something wrong. Uh, Whether it's George Washington or Woodrow Wilson or Martin Luther King or Robert George or Cornel West or even 
maybe even Shannon Bream, although she's very yep, wonderful. Me too. We all have our <laughs> failings and our flaws. We don't celebrate and shouldn't celebrate people's failings and flaws, but we shouldn't let those failings and flaws prevent us from celebrating the good things that people have mm. done. In the case of Woodrow Wilson, he was a terrible racist. He also did some things that I don't approve of. He built the administrative state. Brother Cornell's probably a little more sympathetic to that than I am. He, he hated the Madisonian Constitution. I've got a lot of reasons to be against Woodrow Wilson, but he also built Princeton University into a major serious research university. That's what he was being celebrated for. It's not for Martin Luther King's flaws that we have the King Memorial in Washington, D.C. It's for his teaching that the, every human being is a brother and sister under the fatherhood of God. Same with Gandhi. Same with George Washington, same uh, with Thomas Jefferson, same with Abraham Lincoln. When they're tearing down statues of Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant, clearly something has gotten out of control. Well, and Professor West, do you worry? We, we think of academic universities, higher education as a place to have uncomfortable debates, to challenge ideas and challenge each other. Do you worry we may lose that? Indeed. I mean, that's why what Brother Robbie is talking about is so crucial. Intellectual humility. I would agree with Brother Christmas's conclusion about Woodrow Wilson. He also facilitated the Espionage Act, neglected civil liberties, the kind of police state tactics against socialists of that day. But as citizens in a democracy, there is no democratic project without rights and liberties of all voices being heard. Even uh, Fox's recent cancellation of my dear brother, Minister Louis Farrakhan. I think that we have to ensure that people have a right to express themselves no matter how much one may disagree with them. And this is a test of a democracy. If we don't have that, then we end up just with nothing but the play of power. And it ends up, of course, with the powerful, usually the wealthy and those who have access to a whole host of different resources, crushing the least of these. And Brother Robbie and I are serious Christians, even though we fall on our faces because all of us do, but we bounce back. Yeah, well, we are thankful you know, for forgiveness. Shannon, there's, there's and a I lot of bullying every day. going on. There, there's a lot of bullying going on. There's a lot of intimidation. Uh, okay. People are uh, losing their jobs in the academic world and in the business yeah. world for saying the quote wrong thing or saying the right thing in the quote wrong way or not saying the right slogans as if they're loyalty tests. And this is this this really is the high road to tyranny. And we cannot send yeah. our young people the message that this is the way. You All right, Brian, so we don't have uh, a lot of time left, but what, what stood out to you there? Oh, the first thing that you said, that they are diametrically opposed politically and both brilliant people, but clearly love each other and are good friends, right? <laughs> like just uh, were able to do that. I think it was a beautiful picture of, uh, of that sort of posture towards one another. But man, it does stand out to hear him say Woodrow Wilson's a terrible racist, but he also built this prestigious school. And that's what's being celebrated. That challenged me to go, is that still worthy of celebration? I think that's what our culture is really struggling with right now. Yeah, I think you're right. I think to what, what George was saying about like getting your way is, is not always the most important thing. And I, I like what Wes was saying, and it feels a little bit like what you and I have been saying about cancel culture and you know what does the Christ follower do with cancel culture and it's I, again they didn't end the conversation you know I don't I don't think they won the other person to their side at all, at all. but just it was such a beautiful example of like a thoughtful patient intelligent conversation mm -hmm. that clearly had a bedrock of some kind of uh, some kind of respect and mutuality which 
personally, I just really appreciate it. And uh, yeah. we hope that you were encouraged by that. That's also on our Facebook page if you want to listen to that there. Coming up next from the New York Times, uh, this headline to me just sort of stopped me. What makes some people more resilient than others? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. Missed you. Glad you came back or stuck around or didn't leave or are listening at twice the speed on the podcast. However you're consuming the words that are coming out of my mouth right now, glad that you're here right now in this moment. It's good to have you. If you want to find us, there's a whole bunch of places you can find us, and I'm going to let Brian tell us all how to do that. Oh, and there's so many. Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Find us there on Facebook. Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, online, 1160hope.com. You can ask Alexa. Alexa's going to help you find us, find mm-hmm. our podcast. And you can get our podcast wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. So lots of ways to listen to us. And we are thankful to those of you who do that on a regular basis. Well done, Brian. I'd also like to briefly tell you all about Thrivent. Thrivent.com is where to go to learn more. Fortune 500 non-for-profit that's been around for a century plus. And they have a new fancy logo now. You can let them know what you think of their new logo. I know uh, that's actually garnered a whole tidal wave of responses. But I'm a Thrivent member, have been for a long time. I love their philosophy of ministry and the way they see money and giving back to the community, all sorts of reasons. But if you're looking for a career change, Thrivent.com slash careers is a great place to uh, mosey on over to. Plus, and we've been sharing a bunch of stuff on our Facebook page. They have resources and webinars. They've been... I think instrumental during this pandemic in providing people with really practical resources and tools and even just sometimes fun things like story time for kids. So thrivent.com or thrivent.com slash careers is a great place to mosey on over to right now. And um, I don't know why this one kind of jumped out at me. It's from New York times by I think Eileen, is that how you Eileen Zimmerman, And the headline says, what makes some people more resilient than others? It's a few days old, but I thought it was pretty fascinating. What is going on here? Yeah, she tells a bit of a traumatic story from her own past and then starts to relate it to the pandemic that we're all going through. And she says, how we navigate a crisis or traumatic event uh, and the coronavirus has many characteristics of trauma. She says it depends in large part on how resilient we are. Resilience is the ability to recover from difficult experiences and setbacks, to adapt, move forward, and sometimes even experience growth. An individual's resilience is dictated by a combination of genetics, personal history, environment, and situational context. So far, research has found that genetic part to be relatively small. She now uh, quotes uh, Karsten Conan, a professor of psychiatric epidemiology, epidemiology. There, I got it. I got it. <laughs> At Harvard it says the way I think about it, it is that we are temperamental or personality count, uh, characteristics that are genetically influenced like risk taking or whether you're an introvert or extrovert. We all know people that are just even tempered. Some of that is simply how we're built physiologically. Yet it isn't true that some people are born more resilient than others. The professor said that's because almost any trait can be positive or negative depending on the situation. Far more important, it seems, is an individual's history. Now, listen to this. Here's the money uh, part of this article. The most significant determinant of resilience noted in nearly every review or study of resilience in the last 50 years is the quality of our close personal relationships, especially with parents and primary caregivers. Early Hmm. attachments to parents play a crucial lifelong role in human 
adaptation. I'm wondering, do you find that surprising at all? I actually don't, but it is interesting because I feel like that's close to things that I know that you and I have both preached, right. but it's always fascinating to read things that sort of, I don't know, in a strange way, kind of back up what the Bible has been saying and what churches have been saying for quite some time, you know, backed up in a space like New York Times. But I, I do wonder why you think, because I imagine somebody read this, and the reason that it's, you know, it's getting passed around all over the place is it's probably new information to a whole bunch of people. Why do you, why do you think that is surprising to so many people? You know, I think uh, oftentimes we probably undersell in general as a culture the role that our parents have played. Like eventually you move out of the home and you kind of think, all right, I'm on to my next phase of life and I'm going to self-determine how I am now, right? I'm going to make myself resilient or I'm going to uh, do whatever. And, and as you get older, you realize, man, I, I really do take on a lot of the, not only the characteristics of my parents, but a lot of the groundwork that was laid in those first that here in this article, they talk about how critical the first 20 years of life are uh, the groundwork laid in those first 20 years of life really produces a good or bad fruit throughout the rest of my life. I just think a lot of times we probably think of our lives much more segmented than that. I had my childhood yeah, then I went right. to college and now I'm kind of my own person realizing, mm. forgetting that those are all very interconnected. Well, and I like how it ends, too, because it, it offers some suggestions for how to build resilience, writing interviews with large numbers of highly resilient individuals, those who have experienced a great deal of adversity and have come through it successfully, show they share the same following characteristics. So I want to read a few of those, and I'm going to ask you, Brian, to think of what one maybe stands out to you or surprised you. So these are uh, characteristics of highly resilient people. Uh, the first they said is they have a positive, realistic outlook. They don't dwell on negative information and instead look for opportunities in bleak situations, striving to find the positive within the negative. They also have a moral compass. Highly resilient people have a solid sense of what they consider right and wrong and it tends to guide their decisions. They also have a belief in something greater than themselves. This is often found through religious or spiritual practices. The community support that comes from being part of a religious uh, religion also enhances resilience. They are altruistic. They have a concern for others and a degree of selflessness. They are often dedicated to causes they find meaningful and that give them a sense of purpose. They accept that they cannot change and focus energy on what they can change. Dr. Southwick says resilient people uh, reappraise a difficult situation and look for meaningful opportunities within it. They have a mission, a meaning, a purpose. Feeling committed to a meaningful mission in life gives them courage and strength. And they have a social support system and they support others. Very few resilient people go it alone. I don't mean to overstate this, but mm -hmm. this is just laced with language about church community and about yes. the gospel and about being an apprentice to Jesus. Like it's almost it almost reads like a sermon, doesn't it? It so does. Because you asked me which ones stick out. And hey, you're just reading them like you said and like, oh, my gosh, that's you know, I've preached that sermon, preached that sermon. But. You know what? Resilient people, they say, have a belief in something bigger than themselves. And then this whole concept of mission, right? You think of Paul. Take Paul in his letters. Paul's facing all sorts of hardship, right? right. Uh, beatings and imprisonments and shipwrecks. And it always goes back to mission. Like, I'm still called for me to live as Christ. I still have this race to run. Uh, and, and that gave him resilience. And that last one about social support, that people don't do it alone, like, uh, the doctor right here, Dr. Southwick said, very, res very few resilient people go it alone. And how many times have we said that on this show, the importance of community? And so, yeah, you're right. This this list here in the New York Times really um, 
I mean, it's a sermon series right here. <laughs> like you've got a, a, a seven part sermon series right here that really unpacks so much of, of what the gospel is and, and how to live that, um, that, that life of following Jesus. It's just used different language here in the New York Times. I just read the book Silence by, uh, oh shoot, what's his name? Shusaku Endu, I think is his name. And wow. have you read, have you read that book? Are you familiar with that, that book? I've neither read it nor am I familiar with it. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a really, really uh, phenomenal story about resilience, but also faith and doubt. And there's also a movie. It's got uh, Liam Neeson, if you're interested. That's a, it's, a, it's a pretty intense movie as well. But it, I am really fascinated why articles like this continue to be written when it feels mm -hmm. like ancient faith communities have been saying a lot of these things for a very long time. At the very least, I hope somebody reads it and is encouraged and, you know, Maybe, maybe this is the uh, the doorway of interest into, hey, maybe a religious gathering community wouldn't be all that bad. Maybe articles like these actually stir people's curiosities in a way that, you know, listening to two pastors on Christian talk radio just don't. But either way, <laughs> we did share that on our Facebook page. I'd love to know what do you agree with? What do you disagree with? What would you add? What would you take away? What are some characteristics or stories that really stand out to you? With regards to resilience, you can find all that on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, that is the first half of the show in the books. Coming up in the second half, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things. We're going to talk about masks. We're going to talk about racism. And why don't we talk a little cubbies? That's all coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Okay. Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here, and I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and Thriving Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously, and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about racism, masks, the cubbies, and a story from Nelson Mandela. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And at long last, again, just to give another shout out, our producer PJ is back. We missed you. Glad that you are back in the saddle. Is that a thing people say? Back in the saddle. Yeah. PJ, producer John, is here to party. I'm just riffing now. i got to really stop. Anyway, you can find us a bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk, and wherever it is you get your podcasts. Brian, we have had no shortage of conversations in the last couple of months about racism, about systemic racism, about racial reconciliation, white supremacy, white privilege, uh, we've probably stepped on some toes. We've probably, <laughs> I imagine, uh, given people at least some new categories or some things to consider. We've had 
a number of remarkable interviews from people, both Chicagoland and across the globe. I feel like personally, even just the last few months, I've learned a whole ton. It's been a little overwhelming sometimes. I feel like there's so much that I don't know. There's so much that I need to learn and grow in. And quite honestly, and what we've been saying is there's a lot that I need to lament that I've just been blind to. But I I found this article so interesting. And the headline kind of just comes in swinging. It says, why I stopped talking about racial reconciliation and started talking about white supremacy. This is by Erna Hackett. And uh, I'd love for you to get us into this article a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, this article is a hard one because, uh, A, it's really long. But B, um, it it makes makes me uncomfortable. And I'm wrestling with, okay, do I agree with what do I agree with what she's saying? What is she not? So it starts this way. Uh, recently, people have asked me, why isn't talking about white privilege enough? Why white supremacy? There's an obvious discomfort with that term for white people. The one exception to that is when things like Charlottesville happen. When people march around with Nazi flags, most folks I know feel comfortable saying, I'm not down with that, which is a pretty low bar, but okay. However, when the term white supremacy is used for anything less obvious than tiki torch-wielding well, torch Nazi flag-waving people... Most of uh, lots of folks get uncomfortable. Most of my crowd is taught to use the term white privilege and racial reconciliation. And then she goes on to say, here's why I no longer focus on them. Instead, uh, I teach on white supremacy. So that's kind of the background or the foundation of this. I'm wondering how that hits you at first read, because I gotta be honest, when I first read the term, like we should be using the term white supremacy, it makes me uncomfortable. And that's probably the point. Well, why does it make make you uncomfortable? For a lot of the reasons she described there um, in terms of when I hear white supremacist, white supremacy, I think of a specific type of person that I would like to think that I am not. And I, that's her point. I'm, I'm trying to say that's the point of the article. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the phrase white privilege versus white supremacy, they certainly um, they certainly give two different pictures, I would say. And she's saying um that the the picture that this uh that falls under white supremacy is a better model of what we should be talking about well and it's interesting too because and we saw this with louis giglio a couple weeks ago right in an effort to make a phrase a little more palatable for white audiences he sort of stepped in it even more i totally get what you're saying like i think people they hear white supremacy and they go right to you know the movie american history x have you seen american history x by the way uh no i have not no, you, that should not surprise you. You took a second to think movies. about it. Like you weren't sure. <laughs> like, well, is that no, one no. of the. I, I knew that I hadn't. I was going to try to say something funny because every time you ask me about a movie or a book, I feel like I'm saying no. <laughs> <laughs> Makes for good radio. I think it is interesting because <laughs> people do go right to that depiction. But to talk about the history of elevating or centering whiteness to make it supreme, I think in a lot of ways is actually what's being described, which is. Interesting that we all have these same kinds of not all have the same, but we have guttural instinctual reactions to certain words, which is why language matters. But I think the premise here is interesting. She goes on to say, when I first learned the term racial reconciliation in the early 90s, I found it very helpful and exciting. I was passionate about issues of race and justice, but I had never heard of those things discussed in Christian circles. Suddenly, there was a biblical basis and communal energy toward this value. When I came on staff with this Christian campus ministry, I was taught that racial reconciliation consisted of a three-strand rope, ethnic identity, 
interpersonal relationships, and systemic injustice, though the focus was almost always on the first two, beginning with the not guilty verdict of George Zimmerman and gaining momentum with the murder of Michael Brown Jr. in the fall of 2014, Black Lives Matter revealed the limits of the racial reconciliation model espoused by many evangelical organizations in the 90s. I watched as white Christians and people of color submitted to whiteness responded again and again with denial of systemic injustice, disregard for the lived experience of black people, silence in the pulpit, deeply ingrained superiority regarding issues of race, and fixation on intentions over outcomes. I'll stop there. Again, there's a lot more in this article. How do those five bullets kind of hit you? Uh, uh, they hit me as, yeah, you definitely see those. Um, I struggle with some of them, like uh, the silence in the pulpit one, like you're a pastor. I don't really necessarily know what I'm, what I'm, I almost said what I'm supposed to be preaching. That's not what I meant to say, but like, it, it feels like, yeah, I feel guilty of that, but don't really know how to start. I guess there's this show has helped me talk to various pastors to kind of process that a little bit. But, you know, for me, man, th- she talks about this later in the article that the issue of white supremacy versus white privilege, she says the privilege, the white privilege line is very individualistic versus white supremacy is very hmm. um, corporate. And that's what a lot of this article is going to turn into. And I found that to be a very powerful realization at the same time, sometimes when you think of it as large systems, that's where I start to go, What I don't know what I can do about that versus like <laughs> wanting to think about who am I? Let me look in the mirror. And I'm not saying that's right, but that's why maybe privilege versus supremacy comes across as uh, more palatable because it's it's easier to get our arms around. And, you know, it's easier to look at my own life rather than our entire culture and go, yeah, we do have a more systemic problem. And we see that. We see a lot of people mm. pushing back when the conversations about systems versus individual experiences and stuff like that. Well, and this is what she says right after those bullet points. She said, I had to ask why those discipled by the racial reconciliation framework were so ill-equipped to engage, learn from and respond to a movement focused on systemic and institutionalized racial injustice. I'll discuss three reasons that I've observed individualistic theology, a sanitized version of history and good old white centering. So I imagine even just hearing me say some of those things, People maybe already feel the hairs on their neck standing up a little bit. I would encourage you to read it. And I know Brian said that it's long. It's not that long. I mean, at the top, it says eight minute read. I would, you know, go ahead and carve out a full 10. But I'm curious if, uh, well, let me just, let me just read how she ends it because, you know, you talked a little bit about some of the discomfort with even the term white supremacy. Um, so she, let me close by referencing the imagery of the canary in the mine. In the olden days, miners would take a canary into a coal mine because their delicate lungs would more readily be impacted by deadly gases and alert the miners that they should leave before they died of poisonous gases. In the racial reconciliation model, the death or departure of a person of color is sad and sort of confusing, but is seen as an indicator that the bird was just not a good fit for the mine. They bring down another canary, try to put a tiny mask on it and get confused when it dies as well. At no point is this a discussion that the mine is toxic. The white supremacy framework says, hey, that bird died because your well-intentioned mine is toxic. It's on you, and it's on the mine uh, to stop being toxic. It is not on the canary to become immune to deadly fumes. The term white supremacy labels the problem more accurately. It locates the problem on whiteness and its systems. It focuses on outcomes not intentions. It is collective, not individual. It makes whiteness uncomfortable and responsible. And that is important. I'd love to know 
how you feel about that. Uh, that is a great picture, the canary and the mine. I think that's really powerful. And I do think just because something makes us uncomfortable doesn't make it unworthy of being discussed. It probably means, yep, we need to talk about this. And so, uh, you know, I, I think whether this, whether you uh, feel uh, comfortable or uncomfortable by what she's saying or challenged, you should give this a read because I do think uh, what the danger of all of what's gone on, on in the past month or two is especially for those of us who are white to just go, oh, let's move on to the next thing, as opposed to having these conversations more and more talking these things out until uh, real movement begins. So yeah, I, I'll be the first to say this article uh, made me rightfully uncomfortable, but it doesn't mean it's wrong and it doesn't mean it's not worth being read. So I'd encourage people to read it and let us know what they think. Yep, absolutely. That's on our Facebook page. Leave a comment, send us a message, whatever way you would like to interact with it. We would love to hear from you. Coming up next, we're going to talk about masks. We're going to talk about Fauci and we're going to talk about COVID-19. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I'm looking all over this room right now. I don't know what I think I'm doing. Like, I just... I feel like I forgot that we were doing a radio show for a second. You ever do that? <laughs> I'm like speaking only partially into the microphone. I'm like, welcome back to that. I'm like picking up a book. I'm like, come on, man. Head, head in the game, Simpkins. Get, get with it. I don't even have a window that I'm looking out. It's just a blank wall. And my brain was like, hey, why don't, uh, why don't you scan the room for a quick second while you're starting the segment? What a terrible idea. Um, people can find us a bunch of places. The first that I would like to mention is Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show articles there for commenting we posted a bunch actually one that i want to do later in this week some listeners sent us an article a couple of people sent us the same article in response to a different article that we did so i think i want to address that article and some of people's comments on that article so that engagement might make its way to a show but you can also send us messages if you want you can find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good and wherever it is you get your podcasts ryan i don't know that we could go an entire show without at least addressing briefly COVID-19 mm-hmm. and masks and Fauci. You said that I say Fauci weird. Is that right? It's just, it's just become part of our vernacular now, right? Since COVID-19. Just think six months ago, you probably had no idea who this guy is. And now we use him as a verb, as an adjective. We use him as everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, he just he just made some uh, some statements today. Why don't you start us off by filling people in there a little bit? Yeah, the first one I told you, that this is the much smaller one, hopefully remains much smaller, was uh, there was a, a crazy report today that there's a new swine flu out of China that has, quote, pandemic possibilities, but he said he's not worried. So if he's not worried, I'm going to choose to not be worried about it. Uh, okay. But the bigger statement he made, uh, he said that the U.S. is going in the, quote, wrong direction in its effort to contain the novel coronavirus and daily case counts could more than double if behaviors don't change. He said in front of Anthony Fauci said in front of a Senate panel on Tuesday, uh, Fauci said new cases of COVID-19 could rise to 100,000 a day up from the current level of about 40,000. Hospitalizations are increasing in, in very specific states in the South and the Southwest, uh, places like Texas and Florida. Uh, and so Fauci, as he tends to do uh, in testifying, uh, painted Uh, Not a grim picture, but the possibilities of a grim picture. And he asked people, he was not advocating that we start shutting stuff down. He was advocating people need to take seriously uh, the call to wear masks, the call to social distance. Don't lose your um, don't lose your perspective on what we're still up against with this virus and 
Uh, Illinois, thankfully, is still doing really well. I heard that I believe yesterday uh, or two days ago, we had less, and all deaths are bad, obviously, but we had the lowest number of COVID-19 deaths that we've had since this started in in a given day. Uh, and so we would encourage the people out there listening in Illinois, like, keep going. Keep, even though we've opened up more, keep doing a good job. Let's not do what was out in Wrigleyville on Friday night with people lining bars with no masks or anything like that, or else we're going to end up back in trouble. So Dr. Fauci, again, saying, hey, this is not over by any means. In fact, if we're not careful, uh, this current trajectory could get exponentially worse. So why do you think people are still so divided on this particular conversation? Oh, I think there's a couple different reasons. For me, uh, one is sadly, I think this conversation has become politicized. COVID-19 has come, become so politicized that to be, um, you know, to, to be somebody who says wear a mask or uh, heaven forbid, we should like move back and be more careful that any of this, you're, uh, you're, you know, somehow that makes you liberal and left. And to be, I'm not going to wear a mask or this or that makes you uh, conservative and right. And it just doesn't make sense. But I think one is the politicalization of this. I do think, too, something that you and I have talked about a lot is, I mean, man, to this day, uh, and and I'm very thankful for this. Uh, not only do I not know personally anyone who has died, I don't really know personally that I'm aware of anybody who has gotten sick. Uh, Mm. to any significant way from this. And so the numbers, uh, and this is a sad commentary, we talked about this yesterday, the numbers can become somewhat numbing, right? And you go, yeah, that's a huge number, but I don't know anybody in that number. And I know that that doesn't make us go, and therefore this isn't a big deal because I don't know anybody. It just, I think, is human nature. If it's not really affecting you, it's hard to stay at like uh, DEFCON 5 and stay really... um, really vigilant. And, and I, I get the, the pushback on that. Well, if you're not vigilant, then it's going to come into your, uh, into your sphere. But um, I think that's what makes it hard to is going, yeah, I hear this on the news all the time, but I don't see it. And therefore uh, I don't really know what to make of it. And so I think two of those two things, especially uh, really kind of make people at odds with this. Doesn't that make you a little sad though, that people are like, well, because it's not affecting anyone that I know personally, I really struggle to take this seriously like the fact that the united states accounts for less than five percent of the world's population yet we represent like 25 percent of the global deaths from covid19 that that to me alone is pretty sobering right that should that should stop us in our tracks a little bit and i don't want to give the impression that doesn't stop me in my tracks or be sobering but when i'm making my day-to-day decisions on life and i'm going man like you know, Illinois is doing well. I don't know anybody that's got it. So we'll go, you know, out to eat or we'll do that. And all of which is under the umbrella of allowed right now, but it's not, you know, that brings a little bit of risk. That's my point. I'm not saying that the numbers are like, whatever, it doesn't involve me. I'm saying that I'm guessing people are a lot more vigilant, the closer it has hit to their, their lives and their families. And so, um, that's something that becomes difficult because when it's just a news story, it can be hard to stay uh, you know, up high three months, four months. But it, clearly we need to. I'm not suggesting we don't stay that way, uh, but clearly we do so. And I also think one of the problems is that um, 
The same way you said earlier that you can find statistics for anything, I've kind of feel that way on Twitter with charts. <laughs> like hmm. I I read a chart where I'm like, man, this is going awful. And then I read another chart. Oh, this is great. And then I read another chart and you just get kind of mind numb. So uh, I'm doing my best, especially we had some other stuff on here about masks. You and I, we talked about masks the other day and I went and did some more reading and it really just for me made me more um convinced that we need to be wearing masks and that we need, especially inside, uh, that we need to be doing masks. But even that I see, you know, there's well-meaning people on both sides. It was even on our Facebook page of people who disagree with that. And so, uh, and we're debating that. And so, uh, I do think what's important is to keep reading and keep listening and to remember, uh, that still wearing masks, socially distancing, taking precautions, is not just a way to protect ourselves and our families, but our neighbors and those who are more susceptible as well. But what do you what do you do then if your advice is to keep reading, keep listening, but you yourself are saying, man, I read one graph, it says one thing. I read another graph, it says another thing. Like, is the solution more reading and more listening or better reading and better listening? Like, because this other article that I have here from Washington Post, the headline says, making men feel manly in masks is unfortunately a public health challenge of our time. <laughs> It goes on. We don't really have time to get into it now, but how even for apparently a lot of men in the United States, masks not feeling masculine enough is reason enough right. not to wear them, which would imply at least at some level that the stats that they're reading are different than the stats that somebody else is reading, which is making them feel perfectly comfortable to not wear a mask. So how do you how do you combat that? Yeah, I would encourage people. I, I'm not even sure that that has to do with the reading, right? Like, again, on our social media stuff, I can predict what each person's going to believe about masks and about the coronavirus. And that makes me sad because this is a public health crisis. And so all I would say, I don't know even what to tell them to read. I'm convinced that masks are a, a huge key to us not going in a bad direction here. So, you know, as we close this, if you just hear one thing from me, uh, whether you think it's manly or not, wear a mask, especially when you're inside. Uh, and even if you think that's overcautious, do it anyway. And I know that somebody wants to argue with me and I'm just going to say, in my opinion, just do it. Okay. So, uh, the Brian from Nike solutions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Brought to you by air Jordan. All right. Well, coming up next and not just because the uh, return of our favorite producer has, some. Um, what am I allowed to say here? Connections to a certain local professional sports team. <laughs> We're going to talk a little cubby news here coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, hey, holy mackerel, no doubt about it. The Cubs are on their way. Hey, hey, hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian From A couple of points of business. You can find us all over the World Wide Web, and Brian From would love to tell you just how. Yeah, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, Common Good Radio Show, online at 1160hope.com, uh, Twitter, Instagram at Common Good Talk, and our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. We know there's a lot of people out there who do consume our show by podcast, and we're grateful for you. Go ahead and share that with somebody. All of that really does help us. And uh, those are the many ways you can find us. And if you're confused, just ask Alexa. She'll point you in the right direction. Mm -hmm. She never steers us wrong. Also, and I'll keep this short and sweet, Thriven.com or Thriven.com slash careers would be great places to check out if you want to learn more about Thrivent or if you're looking for a career change. I'm a big fan of Thrivent. I've been a member for more than eight years. They're a great company. 
with like a Christian ethos, which is hard to find, especially when it comes to money management. And uh, I'm super grateful for them. So Thrivent.com and Thrivent.com slash careers. Okay, so we're going to try something here, Brian. We're going to let our producer PJ weigh in a little bit here. And the reason for that is because, and some of you are aware of this, he actually, believe it or not, I hope you're sitting down, brace yourself for this (laughs) news, is the organist for the Chicago Cubs, which was pretty remarkable because he's now like internet famous. And uh, there's that video that was floating around of him serenading. Can it be serenading if you're not singing? Or organing, organizing. He was organizing Wrigleyville. He was organizing. <laughs> yes. I like that. And uh, I, he's not allowed to talk about that specifically, but we want to talk some uh, some Cubby news. So, uh, PJ, welcome back to the show vocally, officially, for the first time. Oh, thank you, guys. It's good to be back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so, PJ, we haven't heard enough of your voice. I'd love to know, what are you, what are you feeling about uh, about the future season this year for the Cubs right now and some of the controversy there seems to be around some players considering opting out of playing. How do you, how are you feeling about all that? Well, the season's going to, it's just going to be weird because yeah. typical baseball season is a marathon. It is, you play like 27 games against your respective division rivals, but now it's going to be a sprint, like horse race out of the gate. Right. It is, as soon as like it's like a football season almost, but in baseball it's it's going to be nuts, and I love that. I think it's it's going to be one of those, unlike the way 1994 was. Brian, you'll know, like how <laughs> there was a strike halfway through the season or a little mm-hmm. over halfway, and there was no postseason, so it just didn't matter. But now we're starting late, and there is going to be a postseason, so there is going to be a World Series, but still is going to be like a quarter of a season. It's going to be crazy. Yeah, you can be we all do need to remember why it's shortened, right, with the coronavirus, because that informs us that the you know the season Wait, the, the what? Exactly. Exactly. So the whole point being if things go poorly this season, you know, could go by the wayside. But assuming it happens, uh I there aren't many things that I'm more excited about because missing sports and now going into you're gonna have baseball in this sprint, you're gonna have basketball in this bubble down at Disney World. Yeah playing you're gonna have football i mean all of this stuff happening at once the masters in november and you're gonna have all this stuff happening fast and like john said everything in baseball here is going to be a sprint that it has the potential at least to be really fun and as a mets fan and that my team tends to struggle uh to be able to say that they're to be able to say that they're tied for first with 60 games remaining i'll take it right (laughs) gosh There's a lot of honor in that, Brian. Hey, as long as it technically <laughs> says we're first. 60 I'm, games left. I'm I'm curious what you think of the players that are opting out of the restart, though. How do, how do you feel about that? I don't think you can hold it against anybody who in any of these sports who doesn't want to play. Like, I think um, you've heard some guys who have new babies or their wives are pregnant. You have others who have kids with breathing issues. Or just basketball players, quite frankly, who are going to be separated from their families in this bubble for, uh, you know, eight, nine weeks. Um, You know, when it comes to COVID, I don't think culturally in general, but with the sports that we're talking about, you could ever hold it against anybody uh, for going, hey, I just don't feel comfortable. And so, uh, yeah, I would say this is one spot where people need to kind of take off their fan hat and you know, be yelling like, oh, we need him. How can he do this to us? Like, it's a pandemic and we're going to yeah. get some sports, hopefully. And, you know, Ian Desmond yesterday, Ryan Zimmerman, I think it was Mike Leake and and, uh, yeah, and John Ross, I think. 
and there'll be more to come. But even if it's like somebody from your team that you love, you just need to be like, okay, wait, this year's just different. It's just different. And you can't hold it against somebody in the midst of a pandemic who says, you know what? I want to stay with my family. So I'm good with it. Uh, not that they need my approval, but <laughs> as, a, as a huge sports fan, I, I'm fully supportive of guys going or girls going, no, I don't want to play this year. PJ, are you in the same camp? Oh, yeah. No, you, if it was because we hear reasons for people not playing all the time. And if you remember a couple of years ago or actually, no, sorry, it was last year when Ben Zobers had his, uh, his family issues and took a leave of absence, there was mixed responses to even that. So I think right. if you're going to give grace to somebody of absence on a personal note, this is a world pandemic and everyone I think responds differently and has different opinions, but nonetheless just got to give some grace. Yeah. Yeah. I, you and know, you Brian, remember in terms of, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, you, you, all right, I'll go ahead. You got to remember too, in terms of the Cubs and the White Sox locally, there was before, you know, spring training started and there's a lot of intrigue about both these teams. The Cubs have a new manager, uh, Chris Bryant, on the verge of free agency, kind of. And then the White Sox are so young that people are like, this could be the year they break through. And now it's been weird because now everything stopped and you kind of forget the storylines that were in place to start the year. Yeah. Uh, this being a sprint, but both local teams, I think, having a chance to be really good, but also a chance to be really bad <laughs> is uh is going to make it for some fun times. And it's going to be weird with no fans there. Um, it's just going to be weird. And I think we all just have to embrace it and go, hey, at least we got something. At least we're going to hopefully have something to watch. And uh, it'll be interesting. 60 games, like John said, is going to be just a big old sprint to the finish. Well, and that's, that's actually what I wanted to address too, because I think a lot of people probably feel the way that you feel, Brian. Like, hey, I'll take anything. I think there's almost like, yeah. like if you haven't eaten in three weeks, <laughs> that you know even spaghettios looks like a gourmet meal You're like okay i'll i'll take what i can get which i'm sort of hoping that informs like jama saying the increased grace that we offer to the players that opt out because like hey li yeah. listen we ju we just get baseball like i'm just glad that we get anything at all we only have like a minute and a half left but john i'm really interested in your perspective and i'm trying to be careful about how i word my questions so that you don't get in trouble um huh. what's it gonna feel like in the stadiums I think because I, I like I said, I, I, I played a couple times and it was just so strange stepping into an empty Wrigley Field. I've right. only ever been packed house. It was just so strange. It was a beautiful day. I'm like, come on, bring on the baseball. <laughs> and I'm like, we had a couple players playing catch at least. Right. No, empty. It was just me. But um, I, th I think uh, any audience and I, I always joke like, oh, they're going to pump uh, applause noise through the. <laughs> the sound system and then crank it up when something exciting happens. But yeah, you know, we have no idea. I have no idea how it's going to look. And we like people, even in the business, like deep in the business, know as much as you and I, because it's all mm. up in the air. It's all up to legislation. It's all up to local ordinance. The right, the our disease control. We have no idea. This is so different and weird. That's yeah. so interesting. I, I wonder if it's going to feel like um, sitcoms, but without the laugh tracks. Yes. Like, oh, <laughs> something's supposed to be happening after that catch was made, but nothing's happening. And, Very exciting uh, catch. You go, oh. I'm waiting for someone to create like a mystery science theater version of watching the Cubs play. That would yeah. be fun. Hey, you do know who's used to this, though. You know who's who should be good at playing in front of empty uh, stadiums. Say it. 
Don't I'm say it, say it. I don't want to say it. I, I won't no. say that. I don't want. I don't want to hurt our White Sox friends. I won't say it. <laughs> you, pretty, you pretty much already said it. We've been preaching empty rooms, so we get it too. All right. Either way, wanted to have oh, some no. some cubby news and get uh, get John back on the show. Coming up next, though, I came across this short story involving Nelson Mandela about retaliation that I thought was fascinating. That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. We are in the home stretch. I don't know why I always say home stretch because that's usually implying that you're like excited for something to be over, right? Like the home stretch of a long road trip or a long semester. What's the positive version of a home stretch? I never thought of the home stretch as a negative thing, so I don't know. That's a, I'm gonna have to sit on that one. Yeah, you've never thought of it. How do you think of it? home stretch i i probably think of it as much more neutral but hmm. <laughs> much extremely neutral <laughs> right down the middle <laughs> intensely beige yeah nice okay well uh what do i gotta do a couple of things you can find us on facebook the common good radio show and we have some lively conversations going on there right now all the articles we talk about are posted there if you'd rather you can shoot us a private message with suggestions or thoughts if you have someone that you think would be a great interview or an article that really spoke to you, we really would love to hear from you. You can also find us both on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk and wherever it is you get your podcasts. We're nearing the end of the show, so this would be a perfect time if you have just a spare minute or two. Subscribe, rate, and review. It can just be a one-word review, a thumbs up, five stars, a share. Any of that stuff really helps us out a whole lot. And we really, really are super grateful for anyone and everyone who has done that because that helps more people kind of see the show. It changes the algorithms, and we're super grateful for that. I have no idea how I found this. It was posted just a couple of days ago. It's from a Facebook page called Truth Inside of You. So I'm not, I don't follow this page either, so if anyone's uh-huh. curious about that. It's a story about Nelson Mandela that I had not heard, and I posted an additional link here if, uh, if we have the time. But it's, it's kind of around this idea of retaliation. It's something that has been on my mind a lot, especially as we continue to see lines get drawn deeper and deeper and everyone online seems more and more upset with, quote unquote, the other. So either way, it's really short. I want to just read it and then kind of get some of your honest response, Brian. Okay. So this is Nelson Mandela. He says, after I became president, I asked one day some members of my uh, close protection to stroll with me in the city to have lunch at one of its restaurants. We sat in one of the downtown restaurants and all of us asked for some sort of food. 
After a while, the waiter brought us our requests, and I noticed there was someone sitting in the front of my table waiting for food. I told then one of the soldiers, go and ask the person to join us with his food and eat with us. The soldier went and asked the man, and the man brought up his food and sat by my side as I asked and began to eat. His hands were trembling constantly until everyone had finished their food, and the man went. The soldier said to me, the man was apparently quite sick. His hands trembled as he ate. No, not at all, said Mandela. This man was the guard of the prison where I was jailed. Often, after the torture I was subjected to, I used to scream and ask for just a little water. The very same man used to come every time and urinate on my head instead. So I found him scared, trembling, expecting me to reciprocate now, at least in the same way, either by torturing him or imprisoning him, as I am now the president of the state of South Africa. But this is not my character, nor part of my ethics. The mentality of retaliation destroys states, while the mentality of tolerance builds nations. What do you think? I, I mean, the story itself is... Uh, is just so powerful because uh, it speaks to who Nelson Mandela was. Like, I mean, could you imagine it would have been an impressive story to be like, I just ignored the guy, even yeah, though I could have right, taken him. Right. Into custody. But instead to be like, come sit with us. I mean, it, 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 uh, it drips of, of the gospel of Jesus, but it also, it's just unbelievable. But the, the concept too, that this is not my character nor part of my ethics he could have really justified in so many ways uh, taking revenge on that person uh, yeah. to say that in the, his lowest moments, this guy used to urinate on his head. Nobody would have blinked twice if Mandela was like, I'm going to retaliate because this guy did this to me at my darkest hour. Right. Uh, but for Mandela to say that my character and my ethics are not determined by how other people treat me, that they're going to be consistent, whether I'm the president or I'm the prisoner is unbelievable. And that's one thing to say that it's one thing to write that it's another thing to live that out because, you know, sometimes we can hold these people up as saints. If I'm Nelson Mandela in that stage, if I had to think he probably at least part of them wanted to get retaliation on this person. Um, so it's just an unbelievable story, but that line, my character, this is not part of my character nor my ethics for me. It, I would have almost justified him doing something out of character because he happened to run into this guy, but his character and his ethics uh, in this situation were uh, consistent. So, man, what a what an unbelievable story it really is. Well, and, and Scripture speaks of this in so many ways, which is why I'm often so surprised by how Christians sometimes tend to act. And again, a lot of people act this way, but I'm I guess I'm kind of calling out Christians specifically because if if we're to be disciples, apprentices of Jesus, there's some things in Scripture where you know, he's talking against returning evil for evil or, you know, even like in Hebrews and Romans where in some way, shape or form, they're talking about vengeance as God's not for ours. Like how we like retaliation is it's like the world's way of making things right. But instead of retaliation, God chooses restoration. He, he, he chooses redemption. So how how can we continue in big and small ways to, to choose the path of retaliation of they hit me back? I hit them back hard. Like I remember even I was yeah. a part of a, a tutoring program. I was helping with uh, fourth and fifth graders. This is while I was at Judson. And I remember one day, and again, this was like in a, a pretty tough neighborhood and a lot of kids that had a tough upbringing. And there was a kind of a scuffle and one kid started chasing this other kid. And I, I was able to break it up. 
But the one kid, the big, like the big tough kid, I started crying when I was asking him what he was doing. And he said, well, my, my dad always taught me if someone hits you, you hit them back harder mm-hmm. so they know not yeah. to do it again. And I said, how is that going for you? And that's when he just like lost it. And I hadn't like thought of this story until just now, but it, it was like, even in this little fourth grader's heart, he knew for some reason that this pattern of retaliation, this like myth of redemptive violence, like you hit me, you hit me, I hit you back harder to really teach you a lesson. He's like, I just, he could already tell at like 11, like that's not the way to life. That's not the way to healing the world. And I'll like never forget that interaction because it, it just felt like in social media and whether we're talking about masks or we're talking about the election or like, it just feels like, I don't know, sometimes Christians can come across just as bloodthirsty as anybody. And I, th- I think Absolutely. we're called to something better, you know? Absolutely. And, and the, <laughs> the, the example for us as Christ followers is the one that we follow. It's Jesus because yeah. Jesus uh, turned the other cheek. He, he had so many moments, especially as he went to the cross, where he could have um, turned the tables and exacted revenge. And exact, and he would have been justified in doing it if ever anyone ever was justified. And yet mm-hmm. Jesus went a different direction. And then he calls us to follow him as well uh, in the way we treat others, in the way we view others. And so this is a powerful story of Nelson Mandela living out uh the same way that Jesus taught us to live out, that my ethics and my character are not determined by what other people do to me. Uh, That is exactly how Jesus lived out. It's a powerful story. Yeah. And like you said, turning the other cheek does not mean that we don't still sometimes protect ourselves from further harm by setting boundaries or cutting off relationships. I think that's still fully within what it means to be a Christ follower, but you're right. Yeah. If, if we are as Christ followers to follow the way of Jesus, who laid down his life, who didn't choose retaliation or retraction. He chose this beautiful, mysterious third way. I, I think that's a good that's a good way to end the show today, to be it a is, people of the third way of Jesus when everyone wants to force us into binary categories. I think that is always, 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 at least for me, a really, really challenging call and invitation. And we hope that you felt both challenged and invited and encouraged in some way, shape, or form today. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. for Brian Fromm. My name is Ian Simpkins, and you have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're